Before we get into the show, a quick reminder to check out and subscribe to the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Each week, he's doing deep dives into breweries, talking with journalists covering the beer space, and unpacking a lot of what makes the beer industry so interesting. Find the Beer Edge podcast wherever you download shows. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. This week, I'm taking a trip down memory lane with Brett Vanderkamp. He's a founder and now CEO of New Holland Brewing Company. As we talk about the loss of the brewery's IPA, the rise of its stout, the intersection of beer and politics, and the importance of water. We're going to get into the show in just a moment, but first, Jack Hendler of Jack's Abbey is joining me on the line, and the brewery is a sponsor of this episode, so thank you to them. And we're talking about the brewery's Lager of the World series, and the third version has just been released. And this time, the brewery is headed to Japan. So, Jack, welcome. And what can you tell us about this beer? This beer is a collaboration with Baird Brewing in Japan, and we were able to partner with them to really bring a really interesting beer with a lot of Japanese influence back here to Framingham. Like, like, what is the Japanese influence? So we used a whole bunch of ingredients and again, some really hard things to find that was, was a real struggle, particularly during this pandemic. But one of the interesting ingredients we used was yuzu. Um, and we've also used green tea. We used rice and we also used sriracha ace hops. And how does it all finish out? What are the what are the specs on this beer? Because of the rice has a somewhat light, dry finish, um, but it has a really fresh citrusy note from the yuzu, the green tea, and the sriracha ace hop. So we used as a dry hop. How much of this are you drinking right now? <laughs> it's sort of perfect timing. It's still a little bit warm out, and you get that sort of nice, refreshing citrus note um, and a not too heavy style of beer. So it's sort of a really nice end of summer beer, perfect for this time of year. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jack. And you're going to be back with us at the bottom of the show to talk more about this beer. But in the meantime, I'm going to encourage folks to visit jacksabbey.com to learn more about the Loggers of the World program, as well as the brewery. This episode is also sponsored by NZ Hops. In a little country far down in the Pacific, you'll find a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. Years of partnership with a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations sees the current day master growers proudly providing 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. And we're also brought to you by Brees, the leading supplier of specialty malt to craft brewers. They offer the broadest product line in the industry, including a wide range of roasted malts that add flavor, color, and character to beer. Their experienced operators handcraft every batch of roasted malt to ensure the product you get is consistent. Check out brewingwithbreeze.com for beer recipes using roasted malt. I've been thinking a lot about entrepreneurship lately, especially following last week's conversation with Phil Wymore. And so while I was preparing for the show this week with Brett Vanderkamp of New Holland, I was thinking about the brewery's early days and that desire to create something out of nothing and to take risks and to learn along the way. 
The brewery was founded in 1996, and over the years, it's evolved from a small brew pub to one of the country's largest craft brewers, mostly on the back of a bourbon barrel imperial stout, which is a pretty amazing feat. Vanderkamp says he's learned a lot along the way, some good, some bad, and has tried to use the brewery as a platform or a vehicle for good in and around the community where it's based, as well as in Michigan. He also used the platform of the brewery to run for state office a decade ago. He lost, but learned some lessons from that as well. In this wide-ranging conversation about business and passion, mistakes and successes, I wanted to start at the beginning, going back to those early days and what got the business rolling in the first place. Here's our conversation. When you think back now to before New Holland opened up, when it became the idea that you wanted to open a brewery, everything starts off as an idea, but then there needs to be some sort of impetus or an actionable item or something that takes it from being a dream into the first step of it actually becoming a reality. When you think back to the early days before New Holland opened up, what do you think it was that encouraged you to, to move from just a, this would be a cool thing to do. This would be a fun venture to, okay, we've just taken the first step to actually becoming a physical entity. Yeah, those are, this is a brilliant question. And it's one that, you know, I tell the story, you know, the story has become something of, you know, you tell it enough time and it becomes lore, but you know, <laughs> I can, I can really tell you that, you know, I, I, I was a geology major here in the same town uh, at Hope College, which is in the same town where I started the brewery uh, here in Holland, Michigan. And the um, I graduated with a, a, a environmental emphasis, specifically a groundwater um, hydrology emphasis in my geology degree. And, you know, that was something that I, I had kind of fallen into my um, my early years of college. I, I was a terrible student was very dispassionate about studying and, and was very passionate about socializing and beer drinking in college. But I, I, I kind of stumbled into this geology um, based on something my a, uh, advisor mentioned to me that said, you know, you might, you, you might like this. You, there are sciences or something I enjoyed in junior high and, and high school. And why don't you check this out? And, and lo and behold, I did love it. I, I love the overall, I love the, pieces of the puzzle, how they all fit together. And the processes that you see today working on uh, the earth are the same processes that happened, um, you know, millions of years ago. And wow. I could, I could put that together in a, I could vision that and put that together. And uh, so it was something I had fallen into and I did quite well in my studies in, uh, in geology. Uh, and I, it was something that I, uh, you know, upon graduating, it was uh, where I was able to marry that that idea of uh, my scholastic passions with wanting to move out West. And I, I moved out to Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And of course, at that time, you know, craft beer was just, this was 94, 95, and it was just booming out there. And it was all we uh, really, when we'd go out to the bars, that's what we would drink. It was what all, everybody, all the kids, my age were drinking at the time, not all, but it was really the, uh, becoming quite popular. And, and, you know, before that it, it was something more, uh, on a niche, 
Um, you had, you know, here in Michigan, we had bells, but that, that was more, it wasn't so mainstream. And, um, I really saw like, kind of like, holy shit, you could really make a business of this, uh, out there. And it also didn't hurt that I was just quite honestly, I was miserable working for someone else and doing what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life, which was, you know, I ended up uh, working up in the uh, front range right outside of um, Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was just doing basic um, some surveying work and some hydrology work around septic system design. And it was yeah. not, not fulfilling. And I saw this enthusiasm and excitement that was going on around this craft beer movement at the time. And I, I, uh, my longtime friend from high school and college who I started the company with, um, you know, came out to visit me and we were like, you know, why the hell aren't we, why aren't we doing what we'd love to do? And who, who we, is the friend? Uh, Jason Spaulding. I'm sorry. Jason okay. Spaulding, who yeah. now, now he and his, he and his wife own a brewery in Grand Rapids called uh, Brewery Vivant. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we just could not come up with any real reason other than, you know, we didn't know what the hell we were doing to start a business and a, and a brewery. And, and it was that, uh, it was this moment that we had. We had several beers at uh, Old Chicago, right down on uh, the Main Street, Boulder, and uh, I. We just said, you know, f it, we got to do this. And it was that moment. It was just became very crystal clear. I was just so unfulfilled with the work that I was doing that, and there was such a need and to be something, to be part of something that was going to be that we could vision that was needed and was going to be big. Um, I packed up my Volkswagen golf. Um, I literally went and gave my two weeks notice the next day and packed up my Volkswagen golf, drove it back to Michigan and kind of at that point, you know, I burned the ships behind us and said, this is it. We're going to, we're going to go for it. And so that was the, that was it. And, um, you know, I, I suppose in hindsight, I don't mean to make light of it, but we didn't have a lot of, um, assets. We didn't have, you know, neither of us were married and, or had a serious girlfriends. And so we didn't have a lot tying us down, um, but it was a big risk now in hindsight, looking back at it. Um, but man, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. When, when you were originally thinking of it though, because some of the breweries that I imagine you saw in Boulder or in Colorado were you know, smaller or neighborhoodish. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned bells being, you know, more mainstream, um, what, what was the original plan for the brewery for New Holland versus, you know, squaring with what it is now? Because, you know, I'd argue that you have a pretty mainstream brewery. Yeah. Well, back, you know, the, the original plan, um, uh, was very modest. Um, it called for, I think we were trying to, you know, build a brewery, build a brew house and brewery that could, you know, produced about 500 to a thousand barrels of beer a year. It was much more um, compared to our, the plan that ultimately came out. It was much more restaurant focused uh, brew pub, like a um, classic American brew pub, brewery brew pub. Um, and, you know, out of necessity, we had to alter that plan because we, we truly, uh, Jason or myself, I don't think we had one business course between us in our college. Uh, neither of our uh, parents were business. They were his dad, uh, 
and mom were educators and my parents uh, were big company folks at uh, Dow Chemical. Um, that's, you know, we were both from Midland. So um, we didn't have a lick of uh, business uh, between us. So it was really, you know, they, the, the banks kind of came in and said, Hey, you know, restaurants are super risky. They just classified it as that, but yeah. this brewery thing, there's something there with this brewery side on the manufacturing side. So we altered our business plan quite significantly and we became uh, much more, um, I guess what I would look at, I look at the breweries that are starting today. We are a larger version of what some of these, um, these breweries that start today with a uh, tasting room only attached to them. Um, the, the difference was this back then, as opposed to now we started with a 25, uh, to, uh barrel brew house. Sure. And, and, you know, so we were brewing a thousand gallons, uh, uh at a time, whereas now you would get a three barrel brew house or which seems to be typical or a one barrel brew house and you brew all the time and you keep a variety of beers on. We, we did not, you know, that wasn't the model back then. We had about two beers on when we started. Um, but, it, but it was very much, a, it was very much a craft brewery model today in terms of, uh, in a garage and just beer. You've been doing this for long enough now, and I know you talk to a lot of you know brewers. There's a lot of people who come through your brewery. Um, you know, there's been people who have come through and launched their own um, yeah. afterwards as well. When when you think about places that are opening today that are starting off with the three barrel system as opposed to a twenty five, does that make you twitchy? Does it? Is it? Are, are you envious? Are there? Because there's obviously everybody's going to do their own thing and and have their own, uh, you know, like their own path forward. But so many of the folks that I talk to who start off with a you know one, two, or three barrel system very quickly realize that they underestimated how big a system they were going to need, and then have to scramble after their doors are open to get larger stainless in. Do, do you ever have those conversations with people of? Yeah. Think about bigger first. Yeah. And I don't know where the sweet spot would be in this because I do, um, you know, I, uh, there was a brewery that literally opened up two doors down from us. And I remember they put a three the barrel in move. the, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, um, it was a smart move on their part, quite honestly. Um, you know, they fill a different niche than we, we do. And, and they've been successful in filling that uh, niche and <clears throat> we're friendly with them and get along with them. But, you know, they put a three barrel system in their basement. And I just remember thinking to myself, my goodness, this is going to be a pain in the ass for you guys. You guys are going to be hustling. Um, but you know what the beauty of the three barrel uh, is, and it's not rocket science here, but you know, you, you get a wide variety of beers that you can put on tap right away. Um, yes, you're brewing your ass off all the time, uh, but the consumer gets to, you know, that's what the consumer wants. They want the variety. Whereas <clears throat> where we had the advantage of the consumer, it was a different time, you know, 25 years ago was totally yeah. different in, in the uh, arc of craft beer. Um, really Jason and I did everything. We worked the bar uh, when we were open at night, we brewed, the, I brewed every batch of beer for the first five years of our company. Jason was out doing sales uh, during the day. So, you know, the 25 barrel brewery afforded us the luxury of, you know, brewing basically what amounted to once or twice a week and then being able to go run the other areas of the business. Now yeah. I don't, you couldn't do that anymore. You couldn't start a brewery with two beers on tap. I mean, you'd be like, you know, the expectation of the consumer is just uh, totally different. Um, so it is a bit, it's just, 
it's different. I, I think the one part, and I think maybe these days you probably have a better, you know, your finger on it better than I even do is that, you know, it was amazing there for a while when these folks would start these breweries with, you know, f- call it three to five barrel systems. And all of a sudden they're having to go to 10 to 15 barrel and they're cranking out 5,000 barrels of beer seamlessly. Like it almost seemed without any effort because the, the market was so ready for that. Yeah. And I think it was very, you know, we, we, you know, we're about 50,000 barrels of beer and we've been at this for 25 years. And I think there's, there's, things to be envious about, about growing uh, that fast. Um, but there's also pitfalls with growing that fast. You know, for us, we've been able to put a lot of the systems in place and we've been able to methodically grow our business and not blow some people out of the water necessarily within our own organization. We've been able to grow our culture of our organization step-by-step uh, step because of that as well. So you, you mentioned, so Let's let's sort of talk about that for a minute because the culture of the organization uh, of or, of breweries has really been brought up to the forefront uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, people have been talking about you know some some really having some really tough conversations about what's happening inside of their own walls. Um, you know, and in a lot of cases, you know, smaller breweries are learning you know the importance of having HR or learning the importance of having. Uh, you know, an employee handbook that clearly spells out, you know, don't be an asshole, you know, treat people mm-hmm. well, uh, you know, or, you know, if you say something or do something that is sexist or misogynistic or, or whatever, like you're, you're, you're out, you're gone. Um, how, how quickly did you try to establish what you wanted the new Holland culture to be? I mean, if it was just the two of you in the early days, I imagine it's, those are easier conversations than when you start to have, five, seven, you know, 50, hundred plus. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the organization's culture though was, you know, certainly uh, it was much easier to define and kind of keep your arms around because uh, of the, the size of the, just the personnel. But as you grow and we went from a, you know, what would have been a 10 to 15 person team to all of a sudden we were employing over 125 people in our, when we moved our uh, pub to our downtown here, Um, it was, that was a seismic shift. Um, But one of the great things, and this was, uh, was very blessed to have my my own uh, father, uh, Steve, worked with us very early on, on our, the mission and the vision of our organization, and probably most importantly, uh, the values of our organization. And, you know, we have uh, six values that guide us. And, you know, these are more than things that just sit on the wall. You know, when you walk in the door, they're actually, it's how we hire, it's how we terminate, it's why we terminate if you're not living up to our values. Um, and it's how we do our annual reviews. Uh, yeah. These values are impl- they're, they're through it. So, you know, yes, there's the technical HR side of things, which I, I recognize is, is important. Um, and, and the kind of the, the, the cover your ass type of thing where it's, and it's real. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay it. It's there for a reason. There's a, there's a reason companies have handbooks, but more importantly, you really want your own um, team members policing based on the mission of the organization and the values of the organization. I mean, the culture within our organization, you know, whether you, you know, you know, whether you're fitting in or not culturally, because 
um, the team will not allow it if you're not, if you're not living up to it. And I think that's the best thing I can say about our organization is it's self-policing in that regard. But there also has to be a confidence that the staff has in order to be able to self-police. Because over the last couple of months, you know, I've had, you know, conversations with people saying like, you know, well, you know, they were saying one thing, the company was saying one thing, but, you know, and it's not your brewery, but other breweries, you know, where, you know, they wanted us to speak out, but we also knew that there would be retribution if we did, um, you know, but it sounds like you guys have built it from the ground or from the beginning of you wanted people to feel like they could speak up without penalty. Well, yes. I mean, that's a, um, I mean, I don't want to sit here and pretend and say we had, you know, New Holland has never had its challenges. I mean, we certainly sure. do. We're human and we're an organization uh, that's made up of teams and individuals um, that share varying, you know, different values, different political beliefs, whatever. But, but I will tell you that in, at the risk of pissing off some of our uh, maybe, um, you know, brewery friends is, Frankly, it starts at the top. And if I'm not living out these values and I'm not encouraging people to uh, speak out and I'm not backing up a zero you know, tolerance type scenario, then yeah. you're gonna, your, your company is going to be – you can't ask somebody to do something that you're not going to you know, live by yourself. It just rings hollow and people won't do it. So uh, for me, you know, I've made mistakes. Absolutely. Um, you know, hopefully, though, my moral compass has kept us, uh, you know, out of the fray on this. I'm not saying that things, you know, I can't categorically say that things I don't know about haven't happened. But by and large, um, you know, we try and live our values, which is, you know, we care about people. We act with integrity. We lead. We own our shit. We engage, you know, that's the other part. We, 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 we want to engage in the processes and yeah. we believe in what we're doing. Those are our values. You, you brought up something interesting early on and then you just sort of tied it back into it. But I, I, I'm wondering if you can sort of expand on it a little bit. When you're talking about working out in Colorado, uh, you said that you, you, you realized that you were miserable working for someone else. And now that you have people working for you, is that something that you're mindful of? that you don't want to be, you know, somebody that somebody feels miserable working for? Like, is, well, is, I think, is that something that kind of comes up in your mind ever? I wrestle with it in terms of wanting to create a great atmosphere for folks. But, but for me, I think that statement was were very much about me as a person. Okay. And, and I truly believe that, you know, every, everybody's different and everybody has um, a skill set and a passion that we want to unlock. And, uh, you know, here at New Holland. And, and for me, it was about um, creating something that I was visioning and that I wanted to, um, yeah, that I felt that the consumer was asking for and the, the, the public was asking for and that we could deliver. And there was very much a void of what I was seeing out in Colorado. There was very much a void of that here in, in uh, West Michigan at the time. Okay. So my passion was delivering what I thought, uh, you know, would make the community better, would make it would, that would enrich the individual's lives <clears throat> that were in West Michigan at the time, you know, back then. Yeah. And so that was a passion that <clears throat> was really was a fire that was inside of me that wasn't being fulfilled by working for somebody else 
out in Colorado. And it was something that I ultimately knew that I wasn't going to be happy unless I was able to really, you know, let this fire kind of burn and, and create something here in, in Michigan. Now, yeah. now translating to what you're saying is I'm absolutely, uh, you know, supportive of individuals that, were, that are working here that want to go out and do their own thing. I recognize that New Holland's not going to be the right place for everybody or, you know, just anybody. Uh, but we are lurking for people that are, are entrepreneurial in nature that, that do understand, you know, the value of a good day's work and a hard day's work and why that's so important. Right. And, um, and, and then they, they are rewarded accordingly for that. So it's been, it's been a, um, humbling experience, uh, for sure to have people that want to get behind, uh, the vision that we've laid out here that I've helped really form and create. Yeah. Um, it's certainly humbling and it's something I'm super appreciative of. Um, and, uh, and I really do love the team members that work hard and, and work to try and achieve the vision and mission that we've set out. When you set out, did you have a beer that you hoped the brewery would be known for? Oh man, we've had many beers <laughs> that we hoped that the uh, the brewery would be known for. I mean, it was um, we we have first first and foremost back back in the early days, man. We love beer and we still love beer. It's it's you know that goes without saying. But we you know we were way we've been way into we had one of our first uh, gold medals uh, that we won was with mad hatter ipa yeah um and we thought that that beer was you know gonna like we we're gonna be known for that beer and and certainly it did it did um uh have a following um and i think i'll let you kind of lead where you want to take this conversation but i think it's been remarkable to find dragon's milk as the beer that we are known for yeah, because it started of such humble beginnings of a creative spark that I had um, received from a local cider maker um, that was aging his cider in bourbon casks. Mm -hmm. And this beer dragon's milk, started out as a single barrel that we tucked away in the back of our, our cinder block building um, back in uh, 1999 and didn't even, didn't release it to 2000 and started out as fit in a 53 gallon bourbon cask. And now, you know, we have probably 7,000 bourbon casks full of dragon's milk aging in our warehouse now. And it's, it's been a, a, for very humble beginnings, very uh, like mild aspirations to say the least about where we thought that beer would go. And it's just organically grown and uh, it's found a following. Yeah. I'll have more with Brett in a minute, but first a word from the folks who help keep the mics hot over here. NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years to produce some of the world's finest hops. NZ Hops are like no others, unique in their flavors and aromas. Visit nzhops.co.nz to explore more. 
And Brees is proud to control their malt starting in the field until it arrives at your brewery. They have a long-term relationship with several hundred growers in the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming and Montana, where warm days, cool nights, and floodwater irrigation yield some of the highest quality barley in the U.S. And check out the latest Lagers of the World beer from Jack's Abbey. This time, it's Destination Japan, a rice lager with yuzu, green tea, and hopped with sriracha ace. Learn more at jacksabbey.com. And now, back to Brett Vanderkamp of New Holland Brewing. I, I, I do want to talk about Dragon's Milk, obviously, but I, I want to jump back to Mad Hatter because that was a beer that I remember drinking early on and enjoying it. And then as the shift in IPA palettes started to change in like 2013, 14, 15, you all kind of blew it up. I I remember an article that ran in all about beer that we, that, you know, that that I edited um, that really spoke about how you were going to keep the name, but totally reformulate the recipe and the pitfalls that could come with that. And if I'm remembering correctly, and I don't have the archives in front of me, but if I'm remembering correctly, you were also trying to, to talk about it as, you know, like a Midwest IPA, um, trying to gain some ground between West Coast and, and the then burgeoning uh, you know, New, New England. England style. Yeah. Um, and there's a gamble that came with like having a beer that people enjoyed, keeping the same name and then giving them a completely different liquid, uh, liquid on the inside. Um, what were those thought processes like and how did that play out? Man, you're, this is a fantastic conversation, I'll, I'll tell you, because, <laughs> because we wrestled with that. And, and, you know, we got caught up. We got caught up uh, probably taking our eye off of um, uh, our production eye off the ball, so to speak, in terms of what was happening to the hops that we were using. Um, you know, we, we probably weren't as diligent on the quality side of the things as we needed to be in terms of, you know, that we were, it was predominantly at that time, it was, um, I think we had some Columbus in the first strike, first strike in the kettle. And then it was predominantly Centennial from there on out. And then, you know, a heavy, heavy Centennial dry hop um, in, in the fermenter. And we, I believe now a hindsight looking at it is we, we, there was just some hop drift. There was some flavor drift in that profile of Centennial. It, it, it moved away from the citrus floral characteristics, ended up getting more resiny, almost back to more like a cascade with the, the pine um, quality to it. And we didn't adapt fast enough. And so we felt like we wanted to reimagine that beer. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a, a mad hatter and it was a, you know, the idea is it's loose. It's, it's, bit crazy so we can reimagine it and i remember we 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 tweaked it to kind of compete with the local ipas here uh in the midwest and we upped the abv um uh i think a percent and a half so we were running just over seven percent then and we we sourced um some different hops that would give it a more citrus quality in in the uh dry hop and it was met early on with um some pretty good success and we saw some interest in it again and there's certainly it was close enough to what the original was that it didn't alienate the um existing mad hatter drinkers as well Mm -hmm. they were still on board with it but over time 
you know, with the with where New England IPAs were going and and the march that they've had uh, westward, there just wasn't a place for Mad Hatter. Um, you know, we're we have two hearted right right. We're an hour away from Kalamazoo. Yeah. Um, we're we're twenty five to thirty minutes away from Founders, and we have Goose Island that flanks us around the corner on the lake. Um, so you know, there's a there is a and we got some other great local IPAs that. Um, are you know of more of the New England style? Yeah, it, and so we just looked at the landscape and we realized you know outside of our brew pubs there just isn't a real consumer need for. I hate to say, it, but a, another you know more classic American IPA, and tragically, <laughs> that beer is actually gone away, and we don't even distribute it anymore. And we're actually, you know, we'll, we'll bring it back. We'll resurrect it, um, for some reprise, um, uh, at our pubs, but it, it, it's no longer in distribution. And it's amazing how quickly that happened, you know, in, in like the grand scheme of the brewery's history. Yeah. I mean, it was our number one brand at a time and it, it, it just shows you how you, on top, you know, it's like there's lessons there and just how, how nuanced the market is and how on top of your quality of the beer, you have to be in terms of paying attention. Um, it, it's, you know, taste panels are now an active, you know, we are on taste panels all the time and, and being very critical on our taste panels, blind tasting them up against competition because, you know, you do get this drift that occurs and, and you become a bit complacent perhaps. And um, it, it can go very quickly. That is for sure. And, you know, it's, it had its time and its place and it's not, I'm, I don't lose sleep over it. Although I do, my wife, it was her favorite beer uh, all seriousness and yeah. she doesn't she doesn't let me forget about it at all that we we took away her favorite beer but um so that hits home quite literally <laughs> <laughs> but i mean ultimately it comes down to and, and it, it's interesting because when you started and when i think back to when i first started writing about beer you know passion kept coming up over and over again you know and you know people yeah. were saying you know oh we're not doing it for the money or you know founders up the road used to have a you know their tagline of uh you know like we drink all that we want and then we sell the rest which was always bullshit but like you know it, it had yeah. this nice you know thing about it where it's you know it's not about passion it's about you know uh, or it's it's not about business it's about passion the reality is it's if you have a lot of employees, if you want to keep the roof over your head, if you want to keep things going, money needs to come in. Did, the fact that you guys now have a bourbon barrel stout with multiple iterations mm -hmm. um, that's available across the country. I mean, that's, that's keeping the lights on uh, and, and growing the business. Are you surprised by that sometimes? Absolutely. That's the beer? Oh, I, totally. I am. I mean, or the it, brand. It, yeah. Yeah. The, it's the brand. It's the beer. It's, it's the, um, it's absolutely remarkable. And I, and I say that, um, that I think your first leading question, you know, your question that got us on this path was, you know, I could never have imagined when I brewed the first barrel of it, literally brewed a, a small bag, a barrel and a half, um, of it on a small uh, kettle that we had, that it would become what it has. I, I, the best, you know, laid strategy could have never. I couldn't have. You couldn't have seen it. 
You could not have seen it because, um, you know, what was at the time it was, I don't know if it was, I don't even know what barrel aged beer would a bourbon barrel aged beer would have been before it. Honestly, I really don't. I, I, you know, it was 20 plus years ago that this yeah. book came out and you couldn't have, I don't think you could have foreseen it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a phenomenal, you know, I don't, it's the number, I don't know. I, it's just, it's the, it's a, it's a remarkable, remarkable thing that has happened. And it's all been from driven from the consumer's pull on this product because it's very difficult to get a program like this up and going without strong, consistent consumer pull. You can't do a lot yeah. of push with it because of the way it ages, right? I mean, we, we have to age this for about a hundred days in a bourbon cask and it's too much of a risk to put all that cash in and then just do a huge push. Cause you can, you, you really have to follow the poll and it takes a ton of planning through the wholesaler and your retail partners. Um, so it's, it's, it's phenomenal. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it just is. Though, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, sorry. I was going to say the, the, the poll of, the end user of the consumer, because the thing about the beer that, that, that I've always been struck with is it can be a weeknight barrel aged stout. Yeah. And there's a lot of the others that are out there. I mean, you know, Goose Island, which is, you know, also they're, they're climbing about 25 years old now, I think this year with their uh, bourbon County. Um, uh, but there are a lot of other, bourbon barrel aged stouts that are out there these days, but that are released as, you know, anniversaries or, you know, one-offs or specials or things like that. I mean, 7,000 barrels or 7,000 casts, I mean, is, is, is an incredible number. Um, and that's a, you know, a really robust program, but by and large craft drinkers have come to expect bourbon barrel aged stouts or whatever, um, as special occasion bottles, uh, weekends, special events, that kind of thing. The fact that you guys have this in 12 ounce bottles and have positioned it as a, yeah, it's Tuesday night. Why not have one of these? How did that develop? Like, was there trial and error with that? Was there? I think, I think there was some, some trial and error, but there was also some happy circumstance. You know, we, we brew the beer. Like I, I hope maybe, most of your consumers are familiar with dragon's milk. It is, you know, it's 11%. It's, it's not by any, it's, it's, it's a serious beer. I mean, yeah. and it's, you're a serious beer or flavor. Maybe it's a better way. You're a serious flavor lover. Um, if you're going to consume, you know, and appreciate dragon's milk on it, but you are correct where we are able to get the flavor profile to a point that leaves you, looking for another sip and it doesn't linger and you don't have to kind of chew your way through it. And that was very intentional. That's always been very intentional about dragons. And I think we have a um, you know, very clever and proprietary way that we go about making it uh, that ensures that we're able to do that. But the branding, everything from the the branding and how we position it to kind of this everyday luxury is very intentional as well. We don't want to be, we don't want to, I'll say it, you know, we don't want to be, you're not worthy 
branding on this. Okay. We don't want to be brewed for us branding on this. This is what we want this to be, you know, your everyday luxury. And it's, we want it to be very approachable and special uh, at the same time. As you, so it starts off with an original, you know, stout in bourbon barrels. And now there's a whole bunch of different variations uh, on dragon's milk. Uh, you know, there's the white stout. I just had a, uh, I was drinking a Solera um, oh, yeah. uh, version recently as well. Um, line extensions are not something that craft has had a ton of success with. Um, you know, the bigger players have, have, have done it for a long time and they, they have the, the luxury of, you know, cutting something loose, um, you know, pretty quick, uh, if, if it doesn't work out. And I think about, you know, when Sierra Nevada tried their line extensions on, uh, pale ale and torpedo a couple of years ago, and people were just kind of confused by it. Um, right. you know, because there is such craft loyalty to a singular brand when you're thinking about line extensions or other things that are in or carrying the dragon's milk name is there a lot more left behind that actually gets out then then actually gets out into the world or is your brewing team sort of dialed into what makes you know a good dragon's milk a good dragon's milk well you know so i think i i if I could answer that by going back, I think, I think we've had some misses, you know, I want to be vulnerable for a moment here and say, we've had, we haven't done it perfect and we've had some misses. And I think we're, we're constantly, you know, we get, we get, you know, at times we, we get the same temptations of everyone that, you know, you made a comment earlier, like, yeah, you, you get to a certain size and, you know, there are, we have a lot of people that work for us and their livelihood yeah. depends on the success and growth of our organization and in a very real way. And, and I take that very seriously and, and want to make sure that we're continuing to leverage the assets that we have to benefit our team members and yet the market at large, the consumers that are asking for these items. And sometimes they, they're, they're asking for them in different ways and we want to provide something that maybe they haven't thought about. Um, but you know, we've had some misses and I think we constantly are, we want to fail quickly. Um, if we do bring something out, it doesn't work. We want to maybe trial it in certain markets and not go nationwide with it. Um, and we want to continue to, again, I think we, where we learned with Matt Hatter is we want to continue to tweak and not be afraid to make the small tweak now, rather than having to eliminate a brand later. So, um, you know, there, there are things that we're working on behind the scenes that we see maybe where we have not lived out the brand ethos of dragon's milk to the best that we could have. And we've pivoted, um, you know, certain ones were maybe some flavor variations that we had on some dragon's milk a few years ago that, you know, we were trying to maybe move that brand in a space that it, we shouldn't have been trying to put it in. And what's a good, what's a good example of that? Oh, we had an orange flavored, an orange okay. flavored dragon's milk once that we were thinking in terms of, Hey, bourbon, you know, uh, old, uh, old, fashioned. It old fashioned. Yeah. Yeah. We were trying and, and it just, you know, to try and get an orange flavor in there, we were using some natural essence uh, of it. And we realized, you know what, that's not dragon's milk. 
we're not going to do that anymore because after we did it, we, we weren't happy with the results. And we, we heard feedback from our consumers that they weren't happy with the results of it. And now, you know, again, these were not a lot, you know, these variants aren't, there's not a ton of volume. So it's not like we're getting um, long on product here, but at the same time, we want to listen carefully and, and pivot where we need to pivot and also live out the brand ethos. And, yeah. and for, for dragon's milk, this is a term of, you know, we really take the heritage of the term dragon's milk very seriously. And it's a name that, you know, first appears in written form all the way back in the 1500s. And, you know, the very, uh, I think Germanic, you know, English Germanic, when those languages were evolving, it, it appears, and it's always been this very special elixir um, that that has been a term that's been used throughout the ages. And we take that very seriously, and we want to live out that. And so if it's not super special, if it's not special, we, we are starting to realize we got to be start taking better care of the overall term and the history to make sure that what we are delivering isn't some sort of, you know, bastardized version of what dragon's milk is but it's really something special and so i don't think that limits it i just think it puts up guardrails around what we can do with the term dragon's milk and i do think you're right there have been brands that have um not done well uh in terms of maybe executing and and messaging to the consumer what uh that brand represents but we, so we need to do a better job and we you know we, we're starting to take our cues from maybe look at the scotch world if you just the great example is johnny walker and the variants that johnny walker has been able to have mm -hmm. um and so we start to look at something with that history and the way that how successful they've been and can we model that with dragon's milk yeah. so um i don't know if i answered your question there but it is it, you know our brewers are behind the scenes constantly working on innovation and and you know our brand manager for you know, who lives out dragon's milk every single day is bringing ideas to the table. And we wrestle with those ideas and we want to continue to grow uh, dragon's milk as a brand family. And, um, uh, but I think we need to keep the integrity of what, what that brand represents. And that's a challenge. Sure. For us. Yeah, no, that, 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 that makes sense. Cause I, I, I imagine there's gotta be like knee jerks of like, you know, well, yeah, let's just put Citra Mosaic in it and see what happens. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and all of a sudden you have a Dragon's Milk IPA, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and then it's easier to go home at night. Um, there's so much more that I want to talk to you about, um, and I'm mindful of time, but that's okay. Uh, go for it. I'm, 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 I'm good. All right. So the a, a, a couple of years ago. Um, uh, you ran for state office in Michigan. Uh, yeah, it was, twice. Like, it was yeah. It was actually it was actually I ran for state senate um, here in Michigan, and that was actually ten years ago, over ten years ago, believe it or not. But yeah. okay. Um, but I, I found that interesting at the time, and it's I've sort of filed it away because there have been a number of brewery owners over the years who have made runs for political office, and sometimes it's, you know, community thing, or it's because, you know, breweries have become these gathering hubs where ideas are exchanged. And it's not unlike the founding fathers of, you know, revolutions being plotted in, in taverns and that kind of thing. But I, I, I'm wondering of somebody who is 
you know, involved in politics enough where you, know, you wanted to put your hat in the ring in the democratic process, where the relationship between politics and breweries in today's U.S. lives? Wow. Um, you know, it's a very, I, I would caution anybody thinking about it to really think through you know, hindsight being what it was. Now, this is to remember. I this was event two thousand ten. Yeah. When when the campaign really heated up for me, and you know, I started campaigning probably a year earlier, and so, you know, these were different times than even a decade. You know, it was a, over a decade ago. Yeah. And and now it's become even more polarizing. But I will tell you, it was it was a very. Um, I don't think our organization was prepared for it. And I kind of blindsided our organization by doing it um, because clearly not everybody in my organization shares my political beliefs. And that, um, that caused it some tension and some conflict. Um, how could I, you know, how could they potentially, you know, why are they working in an organization where the founder and leader believes a certain way? And I don't believe that. And, you know, this was on a state level. So you can imagine going, you know, getting into federal issues and whatnot, sure. how, how much more complicated that could be. Um, but, but I, I think, so I guess I, I guess I should finish my thought there is that, you know, I would just exercise caution in today's climate of polarization because people will slap a, there's not a ton of critical thinking that happens today in terms of when they, when people hear that you are, you, what letter you have behind your name, regardless of what type of person you are, there is an immediate belief structure that's placed on you um, or, you know, brand you're branded and it's a, it's actually quite scary, but, it's um, you start to think, you know, that person and how every, how their behavior, how they behave. And I, I found it to be a, a positive overall positive experience for me as a person, because it helped define me and made me crystallize my beliefs more, especially when you, there was a lot on the state level, there's a ton of going door to door and talking to your community. Yeah. And, and I do think the overall net benefit was positive for our business because it put our name out there more. Um, but I will tell you, it was, it would not be something that I would do again. Um, I had this more idyllic version. I think of what you were talking about is like, yeah. Hey man, the revolutions are fought in the tasting rooms. Let's, let's have these conversations. We need to have these conversations I mean, I don't mind sharing here that I am a small L libertarian. Um, I believe in, you know, I tend, my philosophy is less government better. Um, and I'm for individual rights and property rights and whatnot. But I was not even, you know, I'm not even a hard R or D. And it is a, it is a difficult thing in today's soundbite world to try and describe your position when you are not fully in aligned with an R or a D. I will yeah. say that as well. So it takes more than you got to, you got to have that secondary conversation to really drill deeper. And most people don't really, they don't want that. They don't, they don't want to have the conversation, right? No, it's, they don't. Yeah. And it's quite frustrating on that, you know, but, but 
I, what I've realized out of all of it is, and, and this may be something that can help unite is, is I, I firmly believe that the solutions that we all seek will not be solved through politics. It will not happen. It cannot happen. It's too polarized. The system's too corrupt. Um, and I don't mean that like from a conspiracy standpoint, it's just the entire apparatus, the way it's built, it's designed to, for two parties and it's designed to, you either are, you know, it's to simplify the choices for, for the, uh, the public. You're either a red or you're blue. Yeah. And you have to fall into one of those two and you can't have any type of uh, serious conversation or debate because otherwise you're against the other, you're against me. It's, yeah. So but I don't what, know where the yeah. solution. I don't know where the solutions come from, but I, but I do know where they're not going to come from because it's it's not possible. Do you find? I, I I spent a lot of time on the road in 2016, and I was at a lot of different breweries it, it, all throughout the country. And what I found, especially in the run up to the the election that year, was people from if you were red or blue or RD or whatever. Um, beer was the uniter and that you could have people sitting next to each other at the bar and there was tense, if not polite conversation or polite ish conversation uh, that was sort of happening in the run up to the election. Um, and then certainly after the election, th th there was no, yeah, there was no politeness left. Um, and I think it's probably gotten harder from that. And, you know, the pandemic in 2020, um, I think prevented a lot of those conversations from happening, but do, do you think that breweries or tap rooms or, or, or bars, you know, can actually still be a neutral ground for people or has so much shifted with political discourse that even, you know, a mutual love of hops or Imperial stouts or, or whatever um, isn't enough. You know, I, I it, this is a really tough question for me because it, part of the spirit and the, um, the the spark that start that wanted us to start a brewery was about bringing people together, and we felt we truly felt that bringing people together can happen so effortlessly over a beverage like this great beverage of beer, and you're right. I think that you can't. You know, back. I think your 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 observation is correct. In 2016, pre 16, I think there was this <clears throat> tolerance and uh, inquisitive um, aspect of people that would maybe wanted to learn a little bit more about each other. But you know, in today's world where you can go online and you can meet so many similarly like minded people, you don't have to come out of your preconceived or your 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 built up framework and how you see the world. Yeah. You just can go and you're there and you're with very like-minded people and you don't have to challenge yourself. And because you can get that connection that you seek, um, you know, and you feel like, Oh yeah, this, he's a buddy of mine and he feels, this, you know, you don't have to go and reach across. I'll use the cliche, reach across the aisle and talk to somebody that maybe thinks differently than you. Yes. But I think there's, I think there's something else at play too. And I think there's something more sinister in, and I don't mean to go 
too far with this because it's a beer podcast. Well, I want to keep it fun and light a little bit, but I, I, no, think, I don't think we need to keep it fun and light. I mean, the world is neither of yeah. those things right now. Yeah. I, you know, there's something about, there's something about fundamentally that I've seen in, in, I've, I don't see it so much when you're, and maybe this is a, a reason for hope It's I don't see it so much when you're together face to face and talking um, uh, with somebody about politics. Although I do think most people try and avoid politics now because it is so tense, tense right now. Yeah. Um, but when you're talking to folks online and I've seen this and engaged in it is there, we have to get back to understanding what the terminology that we're actually arguing about or debating about that can't be fungible. And what I see happening is that we don't even have a basis from which to start from because words are, you probably know this. You could see this because you're. This is what you do. You're you're a journalist. It, words are so fungible, and they mean different things. Mm-hmm. And if you try and lock those down, people become very uneasy with what those terms mean, and they almost like, well, that's not what it means to me. And then that's enough. Yeah. If we can't come together with what we're actually talking about, I don't know how you can sit even if you're sitting at a table how you and across from somebody sharing a beer how you can move the conversation or dialogue forward if we can't even agree on what i'm not even use a word but i'll just say you know certain words mean and i think that's a that's a that's a part that we've lost and i don't know if that's an educational issue or if it's just a i don't give a shit so i'm not gonna you know like i'm not gonna learn about this stuff yeah. I'm so disenchanted with it. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It just means we're so disenchanted with this that we're not even going to bother to educate ourselves on it. So there is an organization. Um, so on the New Holland website, as I was doing some research beforehand, um, there's an organization called Samaritas um, uh, that, that you're involved with. And I hope I'm pronouncing that the right way, but you are, you've nailed it. Yeah. Um, and when I was reading about their, 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 their mission and, you know, trying to really, I guess, be good Samaritans and, 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 and good people and without those sort of political mantras to it. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying before of, you know, the system is broken and, you know, it's, politics isn't necessarily the answer. Is there, there's still community good that can be done. Right. And you obviously care enough about that, that this is part of your bio and that, you know, you've, you've dedicated part of your life to actually working with organizations to try to do good and try to do better um, by the people who you know, live and work around you. Um, is that a path forward to, you know, what breweries used to be of, you know, the meeting places and the getting together? It, it's now not necessarily about, you know, politics, but it is just about, I don't know, making life better in your close little geographical footprint. I don't know if I'm phrasing this question the right way, but it's, I think, I think you're, I think you're on to something with that. And I think if it's something that you're bringing, you know, something that's happened very organically for me because I was raised in a family, um, you know, a, 
I, I don't mind saying I was raised in a very Christian family that value that had values regarding, you know, tithing and giving back. And so this is something for me that um, is important to me um, based on who I am and how I was raised. And it's a, um, it, I'm not an overtly religious person, um, but it's something down in my core that has been instilled in me. And I do think, you know, Samaritus is a statewide organization that helps the most vulnerable and the, the people that are most in need in our communities, um, whether that be substance abuse, whether that be foster care uh, families, uh, for kids that need foster care, and ultimately, hopefully, um, Lord willing, adoption uh, if yeah. needed. Or most, you know, the first thing is to try and get them back with the family. But if not, um, you know, ultimately they'll find their forever family. Um, or whether it's new refugees that are coming in right now from Afghanistan. You know, yeah. we're trying to help the most vulnerable people in our community. And I do think this is a, uh, my wife and I have made a very large commitment financially to this organization. Um, we believe in uh, doing what we can with the gifts that we've been given um, to try and stabilize our community because there is great need out there. And maybe this is the way around the political side, even though I know many people within this organization would disagree with my politics, we can unite and come together where we see need. We may not come together and understand and, 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 and um, how do I say, agree on the best way to help them, but we agree that we want to both help them. And this is a good place for, for us to put our energies then where we can really see impact. And uh, boy, I tell you, some of the stories that come out of this organization are, are absolutely um, amazing. They're phenomenal. And then people that come through this organizations that have been helped come back and they serve uh, you know, within the staff of the organization, helping others. And so it does have this exponential impact. And it's, it's a reason, uh, certainly it's a reason for me to, for hope and, and, um, you know, overall well-being of our state's uh, most vulnerable and our, and our communities that we live in. Yeah. You, you mentioned substance abuse as part of this, and that, that sort of jumped out to me uh, when I was reading about the organization, because substance abuse is not something that gets talked about enough in and around the brewing space, you yeah. know, and it certainly exists uh, and it's there. And. You know, certainly if, if people, you know, need help or see that people need help, you know, it should be encouraged that they that they seek it out or, tr or try to help as best they can. Um, but as the owner of a brewery talking about substance abuse, is, is that a difficult conversation to have? You know, I don't find it difficult in terms of, hey, do you want to talk about substance abuse? Let's talk about it. But I do, yeah. I think, I do think the the um, juxtaposition, so to speak, of someone that, you know, makes products that are a problem for certain individuals. There's, sure. This, this, I think, does get back to more of my libertarian roots in terms of, look, every individual is different and we need to respect that. And we've had, this is a, this is a great, I'm sure you, I don't know how many conversations you have around this subject with other brewers, but you know, there are, there have been several individuals that have come through our organization that should never have. Um, I shouldn't say it so definitively that have right. certainly struggled 
uh, with alcohol. And fortunately, in our case, most of them have, you know, through, I think, some help and some conversations that we've been able to have with them, have um, mitigated um, the circumstances that they found themselves in. Now, I'm not going to say that they've all gone into 12-step recovery programs, but yeah. we've, we've, we've helped identify some challenges that people have had and, and that maybe it's not a good idea that you work at a brewery and distillery. Sure. Right. I mean, I think that's, that's a, look, you, you have to, I'm not saying you can't, but let's have a real honest conversation here. You, you have an, you know, um, an addictive personality say, okay, maybe, maybe let's, let's look and help you find a spot that's, you know, that where you're not around this for at least eight hours a day. Um, Now that's not everybody. Certain people have been able to be very disciplined and, and been able to overcome it, but. Uh, others have not, and we've had to help them along the way. Um, but as on a macro level, on a macro yeah. level, I do see the struggle. You know, I, it's an internal struggle. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I don't struggle with it at times. I mean, it is. Um, you, you can see a lot of the um, damage that you know is out there because people's inability to control themselves around it, and and it is a. I mean, I don't think. There, there are there are people that are predisposed. I do think people are certain individuals are predisposed, either mentally or physically, to to be set up for challenges if the right environment occurs. And you know that's that's a challenge, um, and it's one that we need to face. Uh, but I do think we've tried we've tried the other way, right? We've tried the prohibition aspects on things, and, and we found that was a, a dismal failure. So yeah, that didn't work. That didn't work. We need to we need to have these conversations though, and be. Uh, open and vulnerable with each other and, and, uh, to ensure the safety of our team members and, and, and even the, our communities that we work in. I want to tie this back to what we were talking about in the beginning, uh, which was your geological studies. And you mentioned, uh, uh, focusing on groundwater and the conversation in the beer space, I mean, and, and also just, you know, certainly in your state of Michigan and uh, pretty much everywhere is clean water and access to it and the importance of it. Um, I realized that over the last couple of years, I've been talking with brewers more and more about, you know, their water program and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not, you know, they're, they're cleaning it before they're returning it back to the, uh, you know, to the sewer systems or, or, or beyond, but, you know, the, the necessary or the necessity for, clean water. And certainly where you are out at the Great Lakes, that's a conversation that comes up quite a bit. What is something from your previous experience, job experience, um, and and knowledge, what's a conversation about water that we're all not having that we should be? Wow. Um, I think, you know, here in Michigan, we get, we get um, really the, the, the politicalization around the um, uh, water basin here is, is quite, well, it gets, it's full of a lot of hyperbole. And I, I think I was just, I think the scale at which our ecosystem and our water system here in the Great Lakes operates is, is really unfathomable to the human mind. Um, 
in the past two years, and I just was reading this article because our Great Lakes have, have gone down um, 17 inches in surface water. We were at an all-time high here in Michigan and, and the Great Lakes uh, states here that touched Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. So that's Canada <clears throat> and, and Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio. Yeah. Right. And, and well, not so much Ohio, they, they come in Lake Erie, but um, <laughs> we were at an all time high. And over the past two years, the water levels have declined uh, 17 inches. And what that translates to is somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 trillion gallons of water. And so when we start to think about water usage in terms of what a brewery like New Holland uses, you know, that scale is just, it's infinitesimal compared to the overall loss of water that's just happened naturally through the uh, Great Lakes Basin. Uh, and, yeah. and history shows you that this happens over and over again over the past, you know, 100, 150 years. These lakes have gone up and down tremendously like this. So I think scale is really important to be looking at and the overall, um, you know, and whether or not your water, like these beers, what is the actual volume that's leaving the actual basin as well as yeah. far as the brewery's usage? Um, so I think that's really important to look at. And I don't know that we're really talking about how much is actually leaving the actual basin or whether it's getting put, but even though we're using it for beer, is it getting putting right back into that uh, drain, that, that ecosystem? Um, and then in terms of, you know, I, I think that, New Holland is, you know, we've had to work very closely uh, or we would like to have worked more closely with our wastewater treatment facility here locally. And I think that's a big frustration of mine was the, the unwillingness of our local municipality to work with us. And it was more of a, we're going to use the stick mentality as opposed to work with you on what processes that we can do to mitigate Mostly for us, it's BOD and COD down, you know, down the drain. Mm -hmm. These aren't these aren't heavy toxins, but they they tax the local municipality's ability to um, treat treat the water that's coming in. And I would like to, you know, for me personally, and I I don't know what is happening out within other local communities, but man, if you can work with your uh, wastewater treatment plant on a partnership that you can grow, because at the end of the day, when you're starting, you your job in your mind is to make great beer, right? And that's a, and find a market for that great beer. Yeah. And that's a Herculean task right off the bat. Your job isn't to think about, well, uh, I'm also now going to be a water purifier, right? And I'm not saying you you, you don't do that, but you, that's not your job. You're not setting out to be a water purification plant. And so what we've had to do is gradually grow our waste treatment. We've had to slowly do that on our own. And we've had to use, now there's resources out there that you can find in the industry, but they're not cheap. And so, and every brewery is a little bit different. Everybody's affluence a little bit different. And so we've had to grow up our waste treatment plant alongside independently of what our, um, local municipality uh, was doing because it's almost like the more, if, if the local municipality has capacity, it's not, they're not really incentivized to tell us what to do because we have to pay for what we put down the drain. Therefore they get more revenue. And so 
the system isn't really set up. You have to have really good people then at your local municipality that really out of the goodness of their heart want to work with you for what's best for the brewery, the community <clears throat> and the water, the end, uh, you know, where you're going to discharge the water. Yeah. And that alignment doesn't always happen. It's a, it's a, as the intensity around climate change, whether you believe in it or not, becomes more and more. This issue is going to continue to become more and more front and center, especially as breweries move up past the 5,000 barrel mark. All of a sudden, you start to become on the radar. I'm being yeah. general here. And depending on the attitude of your local um, municipality, it can really slow your growth down or be very costly uh, and take your attention and, uh, off of what it is you really do well. Yeah. It just strikes me that this is, you know, you, you were saying, you know, brewers have the the one job of making, you know, really good beer when they first start. I just, I, more and more I'm hearing that this is, you know, part of the conversation from day one that they need to be, need to be having as well. And I think it's only going to uh, become a little bit more intense well, as all these the, situations the, grow. I think you're right. And I think the one thing one can do, and this is just a, you know, if you if you're building your brewery and you have the space to put in a um, a, a a large holding balancing tank, yeah, that right there will will help because we I I couldn't have this more perfectly. My office sits right across from our waste treatment. I'm looking at our waste treatment plant right now, and there is a tanker there that takes our tank. Bottles. I feel like oh. as the CEO, you probably could have gotten better. Better accommodations. <laughs> I'm a, I like, or is this being, by choice? It is by choice. I like being in the, it's one part of me that I think, you know, the shift from brewing every batch of beer for the first five years to becoming CEO and growing your organization has been a, it's a, it's a difficult transition for me because I'd like to keep my hands on things. And so, but the challenge has changed now. Now it's growing a really healthy and strong culture within our organization, but I still yeah. like being close to the action. Um, but if you put in, a, I, I was saying just to a startup brewer, just, hey, you know, if you can put a tank in that has a bottom that's sloped and it's a large enough tank that you can capture a day or two of your effluent that are coming through your processes, now you can adjust and buffer your water accordingly and keep a lot of those BOD and CODs, you know, out of the system. And you can actually pay a farmer or somebody to come take those or a digester to come take those and actually create something from them. Now it's, it, it's complex. I mean, that in itself is another system that's running and operating amongst your brewery. Um, but if you, you can have the foresight to even, that would be step one. Um, you, you'll be ahead of the game. Yeah. Well, Hopefully I know we, we, yeah, wastewater. I mean, that's what we ended up talking about, you know, it's like, I, I think it's important though. This is, you know, it, it's not always about just the fun stuff or, you know, that that's, this is how beer has evolved. Um, you're right. You know, you're right. And and we have to do it and we have to do it better than what we've done in the past. Um, you know, historically speaking. Yeah. I'm talking the long arc here. I'm talking about, you know, when there was a stream behind the brewery and then you just dumped it all back into the stream and off it went. We're not, we can't, we're not doing that anymore. No, no, that's probably a good thing as well. And, uh, and yes, you know, what you're saving on the fines that you're getting is probably pretty good as well. So, um, by the way, I want to clarify, I'm talking yes. about hundreds of years ago. Not, we never did that. I'm, uh -huh. I'm truly. <laughs>
No, you're right. But, but there is an evolution and, you know, uh, to sort of tie it back to everything, you know, I appreciate you taking the time on the show just to sort of talk about how your brewery has evolved, you know, from the beginning. And I mean, there's so much more that we can, uh, that we can get into and I hope you'll, you'll come back down the line and, uh, we can keep this going. But, um, for now I'll say thanks for, thanks for being on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Who do you want to hear from on the show? Who in and around the beer space would be great to talk with? Let me know. We're on social media at The Beer Edge, and you can always reach me on email at John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com, or I'm on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And if you love smoked beers, and of course you do, a reminder to check out the This Week in Rauk Beer group on Facebook, or you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at TW Rauk Beer. And if you're interested in advertising, please reach out to Liz Melby. She's at Liz at beeredge.com, and she'll let you know all of the information. And speaking of that, this episode was made possible by the support of Brees, which has been malting barley for 145 years. And the fifth generation of family ownership is currently leading the company. But the values have always remained the same, producing the highest quality, most consistent malt and working directly with their customers to help them succeed. From Pilsner's to Porter's and everything in between, Brees offers the finest handcrafted malts, extracts, and adjuncts to help you brew the perfect beer. And we're also brought to you by NZ Hops. In a little country far down in the Pacific, you'll find a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. Years of partnership with dedicated hop breeding programs and farming knowledge handed down through the generations sees the current day master growers proudly providing 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. All right. As I promised earlier, Jack Hendler is back with us. Jack's Abbey is a sponsor of this episode, so I hope you'll give them a closer look. And we're talking about the Loggers of the World Series and Destination Japan. It's available now. And Jack, you're three into this series what have you been learning about loggers as you've been going along with this program? One of the, the great things that we've learned is how much passion and interest there is in craft loggers all around the world. And not just in your, your standard types of loggers, but some really interesting, innovative beers. And we're really excited to bring that passion, that inspiration from all over the world back, back to Framingham and be able to introduce these beers. I'm curious about loggers as a canvas for other flavors. Um, Has this sort of gotten you out of your comfort zone a little bit? No, this is exactly what we enjoy doing. It's always from the beginning of the brewery been important to expand people's ideas around what a lager is, whether that's a hoppy beer, whether that's a barrel aged beer, whether that's a spice beer. There's a lot of great flavors and unique things you can do brewing lager beer. And it's one of the great things that we found while we're working with all these breweries from around the world is that other breweries, other countries are really understanding this as well. And we're really excited to be part of this community of craft brewers that wants to highlight lager brewing. One more time, can you give us some of the details on Destination Japan? Absolutely. So Destination Japan, it's a collaboration with Baird Brewing for which we use rice, green tea, yuzu, and sriracha ace hops. It's a really citrusy, Hoppy beer, but at the same time, light, easy drinking, refreshing. So kind of the best of both worlds for lager brewing and unique flavors for brewing great craft beer. 
That's awesome. Thanks, Jack. And I'm going to remind everybody to check out jacksabby.com to learn more, even more about this beer, as well as all of the other lagers that the brewery has on offer. And again, thanks to the brewery for being a sponsor of this episode. And one last reminder to go to beeredge.com to see all that we have going on and to check out the Beer Edge podcast hosted by Andy Crouch. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday and the BYO Nano podcast drops new episodes on the 15th of every month. As for this show, Nate Schweber, he does the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday. And that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.